RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. Any type of creature in this world you can imagine, we've probably slapped a rate on it and stuck a policy out there. So we insure stunt horses and stunt penguins. <laughs> and we've done snakes on a plane. We've, <laughs> we've insured lot, just lots of random creatures. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC, and in each episode I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Ruth Gordon, and we're going to discuss livestock insurance. Ruth has a degree in horse husbandry and equine science, and shortly after leaving university, she moved into insurance. First at Allianz, where she initially worked as part of the equine insurance team, and subsequently as the leader of the small animal claims team. And then in 2015, Ruth joined Markel, where she started as a claims adjuster, specialising in all things equestrian, before becoming an underwriter of livestock insurance, which is what we're going to discuss today. So Ruth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Peter. Delighted to be invited to discuss what I hope is the wonderful world of livestock insurance. Oh, by the end of it, people will be... People will be enlightened and educated and inspired by livestock insurance. So I already mentioned that you did a horse husbandry at university. What on earth is horse husbandry? So I went to Mysco College up in Lancashire and I did a BTEC in horse management, I think it's also called, but horse husbandry is an equally valid title. And it's a really good mix of practical and theoretical studies, because obviously, as you can imagine, it being land-based horses outdoors, you do need to know a bit about the practicalities. You can't just read everything from a book. So they did practical sessions. You work on a yard. They have lots of horses there that you get to ride pretty much every day. And then after that, I did a BSc in equine science, and that was at Aberystwyth in the University of Wales. And so that was very much theoretical, lots of anatomy and physiology. And you find a lot of that dovetails in with livestock as well and farming, because there's only so many studies of horses, but there happens to be an awful lot more studies of sheep and cattle and even more studies of rats. So it's funny, although it's equine science, you you seem to learn more about all types of species. We better start at the beginning. And I appreciate that there is a clue in the name, but could you summarise for us very quickly what livestock insurance actually is? So essentially, a typical livestock policy would cover cattle, so beef or dairy farm production, swine, so all your types of pigs, poultry, pretty much anything. We do cover everything. And so the essential covers are normally loss of that animal through illness or injury. So it's called all risks of mortality. We also cover things like theft as well. That's a bit rarer, but we do cover theft and what's called government slaughter disease. So foot and mouth disease, BSE, which is bovine spongy encephalopathy, tuberculosis, and then some other slightly rarer ones you may have not come across, brucellosis, classical swine fever, Jeske's disease, anthrax. And the reason why these are important is they're often known as government notifiable diseases. So that means they may pose a risk to humans. They could be transmissible, so zoonotic, 
or they could just be something that can literally wipe out a, a population of livestock. So those are really the essential basic types of cover that we offer on a livestock policy. Okay, and I understand that kind of livestock is differentiated from bloodstock, which is basically insurance for horses. So given that horses are basically livestock, albeit with a slightly higher sense of self-worth, kind of why is it that bloodstock is differentiated from livestock in insurance terms? Essentially, bloodstock refers to thoroughbreds, so racehorses, so the really sexy ones. And what's quite unique about thoroughbred is it's known as a closed stud book. So it's very specific to that breed. You can't just call anything a thoroughbred and you can't just breed anything with a thoroughbred. It's a specific closed stud book. And you can even trace the thoroughbred back to three foundational standing sires. This is a really good pub quiz question, if there's ever a horsey pub quiz question. So those three standing sires were Godolphin Arabian, Dali Arabian, and Bailey Turk. So there's a lot of ancestry in thoroughbreds, and I think the, the breeding pedigree is really important. So we have a bloodstock team at Markel and sort of livestock and bloodstock work quite closely together. Similar types of cover in that the bloodstock often is all risks mortality as well. But it's still quite a different beast, if you excuse the term. They also cover dressage and sports horses as well within the bloodstock team. But that wouldn't technically be classed as bloodstock as they're not the fancy thoroughbreds. But that's really the essential sort of difference. I would say it's the disciplines that they're used for. You know, they're not bred for meat. They're bred for specific sports. So, you know, there's quite a few differences there. So all thoroughbreds are descended from three horses. Yep. Wow. So, and that's in the UK. So in the UK, yeah. And that was, so they were imported around the 17th century when they wanted to create a much faster, bigger racehorse. You talked about pedigree. Do you get pedigree cows? Or is that a word that is applied to, to, to you get pedigree cows and pedigree pigs and pedigree yeah. sheep? Oh, yeah, all of those. If they have an official breed society, you know, there you go. It's a pedigree. You can get pedigree alpacas, pedigree pretty much anything, really. Wow. Okay. I'm, I'm enjoying this. So, so, <laughs> so um, we're not doing a bit of research. Um, and on the frontage of the 1958 Lloyd's building, there were these four huge stone friezes, which are now on a wall behind the, the, the Willis building. And these friezes symbolise the four elements, fire, air, water and earth, and the insurance of each of those. And for earth, well, we have the image of a sheep and a very plump pig, kind of <laughs> representing livestock insurance. And, and between them was a farmer scattering seed in a very bucolic manner. So it all looked very pastoral and beautiful. Well, I think that paints a pretty great picture that farming's up there. You know, it's basically, if we're going to get grandiose, it's the root of civilization as we know it is farming. And we are predominantly here for farmers and predominantly larger commercial farms suit our appetite better because often the larger commercial farms, they have really good biosecurity, which is one of the most crucial aspects when you're assessing a risk. You look at both the biosecurity of the farm itself, you know, how they manage that, how they manage their animals and the welfare of their animals, but equally the biosecurity of the country as well. You know, we mentioned earlier those government slaughter diseases. 
you know, we had that hideous BSE outbreak and foot and mouth in 2001. And, you know, that was really devastating for UK farmers. And that's the type of thing that's that's going across the world. And even in the UK, we have a disease-free status for many of those diseases. There's still always a risk of it coming back. So you've always got to, you know, be aware of biosecurity. The number of farmers has plummeted in the UK. I was staggered when I was looking this up. So as recently as 2015, there were nearly 150,000 farmers in the UK. But in 2022, there were just 92,000. So over a third of farmers have been lost in the last seven or eight years. Are you seeing that as insurers? I would like to think if I put a you know an optimistic hat on with those stats, I would like to think that perhaps instead of maybe just being classed as a farmer that, you know, they are diversifying into different businesses, you know, with the lockdown in 2020 and 2021, that provided quite a real opportunity for a lot of farmers to perhaps move into different areas, such as tourism, because I think people realised when we could finally go out, that there were some amazing places in the UK to visit. And I think it's a positive thing. And, you know, there's lots of entrepreneurial spirits in farming because you have to be resilient, you have to keep going. And, you know, perhaps that's a good thing that there is some diversity so that it can just sort of weather those storms. Livestock insurance apparently at the moment is globally is worth about £2.79 billion to insurers. That was a figure from 2021. All of these figures, I hasten to point out, are lifted from the internet and therefore could be completely inaccurate. <laughs> but uh, but uh, hey, I'm using them. Uh, so, so it's $2.79 billion for livestock insurance in 2021, but that's estimated to more than double to kind of $5.77 billion by 2031. So you know, within a 10-year period. Obviously, most of that growth is going to be in, in developing countries where presumably a lot of livestock is currently uninsured but will be insured by 2031. Do you personally insure farmers outside the UK? You've already hinted earlier that that, that you do. Obviously, Markel globally will do, but I'm just wondering, kind of you personally, kind of what, what's your what, where are your geographical limits? Yeah, we we do insure globally. So we are Markel International, and we you know we do have lots of different markets globally. But it's the relationship with the local brokers is absolutely crucial so we'd only really write a risk in a particular territory firstly if we're regulated and permitted to do so and secondly if you know we had a really good local broker who could speak the language and I don't just mean the language of the country itself but the language of the farmers within that country as well which honestly is a whole mm. a whole nother ball game and I think particularly in African nations which have been subjected to even more hideous weather related events than we have I think they're very adaptable and can be resilient and if there is going to be growth in those areas it's going to be done in a very smart way so you know we'll see it'll be interesting it'll be really great if we can support um, those countries through that agricultural transition. Oh absolutely and, and, and presumably in a lot of the developing countries it'll be done through micro insurance I mean we, we, we had Rose Goslinger on I think in season one, um, so you know, two or three years ago, talking about micro insurance for for crops um, in developing countries. So presumably that there, there will be equivalent micro insurance for for livestock as well. 
So you've already kind of touched upon, in, in, in your first answer, you touched upon kind of the, what livestock insurance is. Could you talk us through a standard livestock policy? So what's it cover? And then talk us through some of the, the common exclusions. So the main type of benefit is all risks mortality. So that's the loss of your animal through illness or injury. So it doesn't cover every eventuality. If it just dies of old age, then, you know, just like wear and tear on a household policy. Unfortunately, that's not covered. But if it suffers an illness or injury and it requires what they call humane destruction, then that's the standard cover. So that can be sometimes a difficult concept to understand because we don't cover what would be considered economic slaughter. So say if you purchased a bull and it's used for breeding, but it just had a slight injury to its foot, so it couldn't maybe mount cows anymore but actually it doesn't need to be put down it doesn't need humane destruction so that's the type of injury or illness that wouldn't be covered within the policy so it's not you know a be all and end all but it's there for those really unexpected and and sudden incidents in a in a perfectly healthy creature we do offer loss of use so that's, for example, if you had that same ball that got a, an injured foot, and I know that doesn't sound very severe, but if you can imagine the weight of this animal and the sort of athletic activities that's expected of a breeding Ruth, ball. Ruth, this is far too much information. <laughs> uh, should put a disclaimer on I was, I was going to say, we're going to have to put an explicit warning on. We, do get, we get a lot of penis injuries as well, but I decided I wasn't going to discuss those. It's too late, you've just done it. go there now. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we'll go back to it. It's just got a poorly foot. Um, and so it can no longer serve cows. But again, it doesn't need to be put down, but we can pay for the loss of use. So that will be a value instilled in that bull that we can pay out. So there is cover for those types of scenarios. And obviously, you're only really going to buy a bull to perform that job to get lots of lovely calves. So, you know, that's it's a really good, interesting cover, which I think is fairly unique to livestock and some bloodstock policies. I'm sorry, just for you. I love that. I love that euphemism that that he's there to serve the cows. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty great work if you can get it, I guess. I think they probably have a pretty great life as long as they don't injure their feet too much. (laughs) Or or other parts. Yes. Uh, Moving on, restricted perils. So again, they're actually pretty similar to lots of other types of cover. So it's a much lower premium. Great if you've got a huge herd and you can't really afford to cover everyone for mortality, but you want to cover the big things. So, you know, fire, lightning, storms, those types of cover. Uh, So so if they're all in in a shed or something and the shed goes up in flames. Absolutely. yeah. Yeah. Do you get many lightning strikes on on livestock? You know what? More than you'd think. Yeah, I think lightning, yeah, because they they can conduct lightning and obviously they're just out there chilling out outside. You know, it. yeah, it can be it can be pretty devastating. Golly, poor them. Yeah. So um, get insurance, basically. This is this is turning into an advertorial. (laughs) And then I have mentioned these before, but then there's the government slaughter disease as well. And that's often, it goes hand in hand with uh, government compensation. So for example, 
if you have a herd of cattle, there's government compensation if they do have to be slaughtered due to foot and mouth, but it's a very low amount that's paid out. It doesn't really cover the value of that animal. And if you think about its keep, the electricity in the barns, the feed that it's had, you mm. know, all of those sort of costs aren't really covered. So we do offer, it would be, it's a, a top up basically on the compensation. So, so, so when was when was the last foot and mouth outbreak because I, I remember it is horrific but but when was it I, I think it was 2001 2001 so that would have been were you so i remember smelling the burning rendering of the cows when i was at school yeah <laughs> so when I, I was at was, school on my lunch break you could smell the rendering of the animals that had to be destroyed it was it, really it was it was really horrific and and yeah for Anyone who doesn't remember it, kind of, it was it was thousands of, of yeah. cows were, yeah, awful, awful. Yeah. But, um, so and and you know that's in a country with excellent biosecurity, but it's just you've got to always learn from these things and move on. But there is always the risk there that that these things can come back. No, exactly. And uh, so, are there any major issues at the moment that you're facing? I mean, presumably the, the great fear for livestock insurers is, is a pandemic that does to cows what COVID-19 did to us. That's true. And, I, you know, I feel like in this industry, we're very aware of pandemics, of coronaviruses, of zoonotic diseases. You know, those types of viruses, diseases and disease spread is something we're, we're looking at all the time. And at the minute, these past couple of years have been horrendous for um, avian influenza. It's been such an unusual an unusual presentation it's we speak to a lot of veterinary professionals all the time just trying to get to grips with what's what's happened and why it's happened and there's still honestly there's scratching heads and everyone's quite baffled because typically it used to follow the bird migratory patterns but what's been odd this year is that it's it was present during summer and during spring as well so it hasn't followed the usual migratory patterns the hope is that it like colds and possibly even with COVID, the more it passes on, the less virulent it becomes. And so it becomes more of like a common cold or it doesn't result in mortality. But, you know, we don't know how long that might happen and it might not even develop into that. So it is always a concern. And I feel there's never enough media response to these things i feel like they're really uh, on the ai epidemic this was really again devastating farmers and massively affecting everyone who goes into the countryside but i don't think there's enough really uh, understood about it in the uk and and how no. important it no. is no i mean it was interesting I, I went to i went to slimbridge the wetlands center on on the river seven in gloucestershire um at the weekend and in order to get in, you have to walk through a disinfectant yeah. um, kind of panel. Bath, um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so, but I did see the white rump sandpiper. You'd be pleased to hear. Oh, good. So, so that was successful. Um, right. But the, the, but but yeah. But, but last summer, the, the seabird populations were absolutely destroyed. So gannets and skewers and terns. It was, it was, yeah, it was beyond awful. And as you say, there, there wasn't really much. There wasn't really much news coverage. I didn't say no. I want to talk for a moment about biodiversity because, according to Google, uh, there are 780 million pigs in the world, 
uh, over 1 billion sheep, 1.5 billion cows, and how many chickens do you think there are, Ruth? Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I'm going to go, is this globally? This is globally. 12 billion chickens? Well, the numbers are between 26 and 35 billion chickens. Oh, my gosh. So that's that's four chickens for every human. Well, does that include the three in my backyard? I, I, I don't know whether they were specifically counted, uh, but in, in generic terms, yes, they do include wow. the, the three. So that, that's that's extraordinary numbers. And I mean, it's quite a well-known fact now, but but if, if you put all the mammals of the world on a set of scales, then livestock would represent 60% of mammal biomass humans at 36%, and wild animals, so all the mm. tigers, cheetahs, elephants, rats, mice, all of that constitute just 4% of, of biomass. And uh, I, I came across this quote from uh, a researcher in the area, called uh, a guy called Ron Milo, and he said, when I do a puzzle with my daughters, there is usually an elephant next to a giraffe next to a rhino. But if I was trying to give them a more realistic sense of the world, it would be a cow next to a cow next to a cow and then a chicken. Uh, as a livestock underwriter, uh, how do you respond to that? Kind of what emotions does it does it provoke? Yeah, it's interesting to hear it like that and to look at the the volumes. Obviously, there is a lot of livestock out there, but you know we have been farming for centuries and it has been the key to our success essentially. But to bring this back to your point on biodiversity and farming and livestock, I think we can have both. And I think there is a lot more of a focus on biodiversity and in particular regenerative farming. It's, a, I would say it's a passion of mine. I just read a lot of books about it and look at a lot of blogs. But if you think about one of the biggest advances in farming is back in 1913, Fritz Haber created the method to create artificial fertilizer. And this is because air is mostly nitrogen, but plants can only utilize nitrogen when it's part of a chemical compound. So he created a method to obtain nitrogen from air, which frankly is baffling. It's absolute alchemy. It's one of the most fascinating inventions, I think, that, that's ever happened. And that allowed farmers to put inputs, as we would call it now, fertilizers onto their land. And it revolutionized farming, it increased yields. And back when I was at agricultural college, the focus was predominantly on yield. So, you know, there was a lot of focus on artificial fertilizer just to get the yield up. But I feel like now we're moving away from that and we're moving into soil health and understanding how we can do things with less inputs. And you know what? That suits a farmer too, because inputs cost money. If you can get something that doesn't cost money or costs you less or means you have to do less work, then that's going to be an absolute win. So I feel like soil health is definitely more of a focus now. And regenerative farming is a way, is a way of understanding soil health and looking at what you're doing but you still need livestock to do that they are some of the best environmental managers you can ever imagine you know they're they're really fantastic and 
there's some fantastic wilding and rewilding projects as well that again use livestock and um, nep estate in west sussex is oh, you know, it's amazing yeah it's brilliant it's, it's one of the greatest success stories but and i will caveat that with i mean i've i've read the book and it's fascinating i haven't been yet i really want to go no another have I. i'd love to go but i will do one day so how they've turned what was an industrial farm into a much more biodiverse landscape over several years and over over several projects it's brilliant but i caveat that with they did have other revenue streams they when you read the book they're talking about you know the pigs getting into the marquee where they had a wedding on and you just think well we're probably not getting the full picture still a success story still fantastic as an example but that might not necessarily be available for every farmer. And it, it can be difficult. And I think there's a lot of pressure on farmers to be like, what are you doing about biodiversity? But they are, you know, tied into plans that match the seasons. Mm. So they can't just swap and change things instantly. But livestock play an absolutely crucial part of biodiversity. Mm. In my opinion. And we've already touched upon conservation and you mentioned the the, the game reserves as well earlier on uh, do you want to kind of just talk a little bit about kind of the role that livestock insurance plays in, in supporting conservation yeah so we've supported transits when they're moving rhinos across from reserve to reserve but it's really interesting it's very clandestine how they manage this and they have to be really super secret squirrel on this because you know, they don't know who's listening and who could be, who could potentially find out the location of these creatures. Because unfortunately, the poaching industry, the illegal trade is just so huge and can be really devastating. So I think there is a role in conservation that insurance can can help to provide. What I would love to get into, so if there's anyone out there who has any intel, is there's some amazing um, biobanks. So they're where they store tissue and DNA of, they're trying to basically get almost every species that we have. And although the technology isn't quite there with DNA. It is a bit. So depending on what type of tissue, you can create different organisms and things from it. Very Jurassic Park. Very um, Jurassic Park. I know. They're, but they're doing the freezing. They're doing the cryogenic freezing and, and keeping a record because they just know it's going to be interesting for the future and the future yeah. of the world, really, in order to preserve these creatures where hopefully we might have a place to do so in the future. So we don't insure those, but I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so that's the equivalent of the... There's a huge seed bank as well, isn't there? In North, well, there's one in I thought there's one in Sweden or something like that. As well. Quite possibly the Dutch are really yeah, oh, Dutch. Sorry, not, yeah. in Netherlands, I would say they're really forward thinking. Yeah. In these yeah. So anyway, so, so there's a few of those. We've talked about farmers and we've talked about game reserves, but kind of what are the slightly unusual risks that you've seen over the years? Oh, there's loads. There's loads of really random creatures. Uh, you can just if any any type of creature in this world you can imagine we've probably slapped a rate on it and stuck a policy out there so we insure stunt horses and stunt penguins <laughs> stunt penguins okay yeah, they're penguins that have been used in in films and in filming and basically any kind of creature now, now, now you actually mentioned this to me but when we were talking last week so i i, I once again i looked up to see which films have penguins in so apparently uh, batman returns 
kind of 1992. So obviously Batman was against Penguin, the character, but there was a scene with lots of penguins. And that Mr. Popper's penguins, which is... Um. Uh, well, I don't know whether we covered any of the penguins on there. No, that's fine. And, and there's obviously the, the, the penguin chocolate biscuit adverts as well. Oh, yes. where, where in, did they have the real 70s. penguins in them? In the 70s and 80s, they did. Oh. When I were young. Yeah, no, they, they, <laughs> they, they definitely did. Anyway, yeah, sorry, I interrupted. So, but stunt penguins. Yeah, and, you know, we, we literally, we've done snakes on a plane. We've... <laughs> We've ensured lot, just lots of random creatures, and they are the exciting ones. They're the bits where you go, oh, gosh, what am I going to do with this one? <laughs> How do I rate this? <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned, I think, when we spoke last time, worms. You said you yeah. ensured worms on one occasion. Well, we had a quote for worms. I don't think oh, we okay. had it at the okay. end. But, um, yeah. yeah, so we worms in transit. Lots of transits for weird and wonderful things. Um, so, yeah, li but literally anything, you know, alpacas and deers. And and th I'm amazed how many types of antelope there are in the world. Everything oh, I would yeah. just look at and go, well, it looks a bit like an antelope. But actually, there's, there's such a diverse range and they're all like, Got really cool markings as well, but they're all a oh, bit yeah. different as well. So you're obviously a keen horse person. Is livestock insurance filled with animal lovers? Is is that where animal yeah. lovers go to insure? <laughs> Absolutely, one hundred percent. We've all got lots of dogs, fair few horses, and the team. I've got a few backyard chickens. Very sadly, on flock down, thanks to the government regulations, so they're being kept in in their run and housed. Flock down. That yeah, that's what they all call it in the mad chicken groups I'm in, or these mad women that keep chickens. <laughs> and I, but I just think that's perfect because because of the government, the housing order that's been in since I think November. They've been in. Um, hopefully, once this you know ai sort of settles down we can let them out again but yeah we've been calling it flock down <laughs> oh that's brilliant i love that um and to conclude ruth this has been a fascinating conversation i've loved it but what bit of advice would you give to someone who is thinking about kind of getting involved in the insurance industry um but you know what have you learned from your your years as, as a kind of equine and livestock insurer I would say do it. It's it's great. It's more fun than than you think. But definitely go into insurance when the subject matter is something you care about because you'll get so much out of it. So if you care about the subject matter, I don't know, if you like speed boats, you could probably do boating insurance, yachts or something. But for me, just, you know, livestock and equine, just love it. Thank you, Ruth. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day. <laughs>